please join me in uh, praying. Well, good morning, Lord. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you especially for this teaching that you've given us that explains the signs of our times as well as the signs of the end of this time. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach. I pray for each one of us in here that our lives would find the rightful place in your greater story. Lord, as we start into Advent, I pray that it would be a holy season and a good one. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know if you realize this yet, but worship of all kinds is formative. And liturgical worship, like we have in this church, um, is intentionally formative, not just accidentally. We do things on purpose because of what they communicate. So as I just prayed, this is the beginning of Advent. It's technically the beginning of the Christian year. So this is the first Sunday of the church's calendar. And in, in the 12 months of the calendar, we tell the Christian story in a number of different ways. For instance, we light an Advent wreath. And we are marking four Sundays of this season. We've changed the colors to this deep indigo, which is significant of royalty. It's also close to the color purple, which is a color of penitence. So this is a season just like Lent leads up to Easter, Advent leads up to Christmas. It's, a, it's its own season. And the funny thing about the formative nature of liturgy is having been in a church like this for as long as I have, uh, sort of unintentionally, I've allowed myself to be shaped by it in such a way that I get irritated when people uh, have their Christmas stuff out before Advent 1. Now, this is my problem, not yours, so I'm not, I'm not complaining about you. Or the day after Christmas, the tree is on the curb instead of recognizing that Christmas goes all the way to Epiphany, January 6th. So, you know, we are already hearing Merry Christmas from people in the Walmart checkout. And every year I, I find myself perturbed by the consumerism of our culture, and we think of the four weeks of Advent as the clock counting down to get your Christmas shopping done, and completely miss the point of the season. Advent is its own season, and it's a really good and useful season, and it's about expectant waiting for Christ. It's about expectant waiting for Christ. And to that end, we're starting a new preaching series for four weeks called Living with Expectation. And our children's team, um, this project was headed up uh, by Jennifer White and our children's team and the folks that were at the Advent wreath-making event where, um, Stuart, if you'll show that picture of that wreath, um, this is hanging in our narthex. You might have walked past it in the crowd on your way in, but that's a big, I don't know, it's probably six foot by six foot uh, board with handprints that were painted on there on last Sunday as we made our Advent wreaths. So it's symbolic of all the people of God uh, in, in a circle there. And in the middle it says, our hope and expectation are in you, Lord, which is from Psalm 39, 7. And right away the question is this, is that true of me? our hope and expectation are in you, Lord. Would you say that is true of you? Does that describe your heart and what's going on? Now, in this four-week series, we're going to look at living in, living in expectation or expectations, um, and this is expectation of hope, and then we're going to look at expectation of salvation, expectation of transformation, and then expectation of serving. And that's when we get into the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary and her glorious response in the Magnificat. So those four weeks. So today we're going to look at hope. And Jesus teaches us through the fig tree. He says, learn the lesson of the fig tree, which is really about expectation. Now as Floridians, it's a little tricky because our seasons are not quite the same. 
So you might say, learn the lesson of the robin who has just arrived from the cold north a little early, and when the robin disappears, you know it's really springtime and they've flown back north. The lesson of the fig tree is this. It was a deciduous plant, is a deciduous plant, so it loses its leaves in the winter. In the springtime, in the climate where Israel is, it would start to put buds out on the branches, and then you know summer fruit is around the corner. In fact, they call it sometimes summer fruit. The fig was always ripe in the summertime. So he's saying, recognize this from the fig tree, learn this lesson about seasons, about times, about what is about to happen. And Jesus is trying to help his followers, both then and now, distinguish between signs of the times and signs of the end. So put that next picture up there, which is a a rendition of the temple and this is an artist's rendition of Herod's temple, so the, the second temple. And it was a pretty impressive structure. The Holy of Holies, that tall center uh, building, was 150 feet tall. And you might not think that's great in light of our modern skyscrapers, but considering they had no modern equipment and diesel engines and cranes and stuff, that was all done like with old school engineering, the kind with like logs and back labor. And so they built this glorious structure, and Herod really expanded it and made that temple mount huge. And what starts the teaching in today's gospel passage is the disciples saying to Jesus, look at these impressive stones. What magnificent stones. Look at this temple. And they were lifting up their heads, and they were putting their hope in the temple system. And Jesus says, not one of these stones is going to be left on top of another. Now, show the next picture. Some of you saw this when I reported back after visiting Israel. Although the temple's been torn down, the temple mount has not. It's so big, the retaining wall is still there. And I went up those little steps on the left, so it'll give you some scale, and I touched that wall as I did so, and then it occurred to me to back up and look around the corner again. That's not like a four by four brick. That's like a four by four by 24 brick. Like that one stone that I circled in red goes all the way there. And it's not even one of the biggest stones in that wall. And that wall goes 40 feet below down to bedrock. Herod buried it. And then it goes another, I don't know, 50 or 60 feet up just to build that temple mount. It's so big. And I was like, whoa, look at these big stones. And then I heard Jesus say, in my head, I heard him say, don't be impressed with those stones. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days which is what he said in John chapter 2, right? They were marveling at this man-made structure. Of course, God commissioned them to do it, and the Lord was present in that work. But it was a man-made structure, and the Son of Man was right there next to them. They were marveling at the wrong thing. They were putting their hope in a system, a temple structure, that had not recognized the day of its coming in visitation. The Son of Man had come, and they totally missed him. In fact, they were offended at him and decided to kill him. And so, Jesus gives a teaching, and he's trying to help the first followers of Jesus understand something. Recognize the difference between the signs of the age and the signs of the end. Now, I want you to turn in a Bible to page 881, which is Luke chapter 21. Lisa only read a small portion of it for us this morning, but to get the context, which is part of the text, you've got to get the whole thing. You've got to look a little bit broader. So I've already described what the interplay looked like, where they were speaking of the temple in back in verse 5, how it's adorned and with, with what noble stones and offerings. And he says, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I was surprised, actually, when I walked around the corner. I went up those little steps. Well, you don't have to look at that picture. I went up those little steps and walked down the plaza. There are huge crushed pieces of 
plaza and the stones that crushed it are still there. When the Romans tore the temple down, they heaved those big stones off that mount. It fell, I don't know, 100 feet or whatever it is, and smashed the plaza. And it still lies there smashed. And the stones are still laying there. 2,000 years, been sitting there. They're just so big. They did all this damage. And what Jesus said totally came true. Not one stone will be left on another of the temple. Temple Mount is still there, but the temple is totally gone. So Jesus speaks to his first disciples in this teaching And he explains two things that they're facing, only one of which we are still facing. The first was the persecution of the Jews. And the second was the perplexity of nature and nations. So let me start with the first one. In verses 12 and 16 of chapter 21, he says this. To the the would-be Christians, they, they weren't called Christians yet. They were just followers or disciples of Jesus. But in verse 12, he says to them, "Before, but before all of this that he was describing... They, meaning the Jews, will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then down a little further in verse 16, it says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The signs of the times were that it was going to be hard to be a follower of Jesus when the temple system was still in place. To be a Jew who has found the Messiah was in direct confrontation with a Jew who's still waiting for the Messiah and worshiping in the temple. But he tells the sign of the end of that when he says this. This is in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And then he gives them some advice. He says, run. Don't be in the city. Get up to the mountains of Judea. Flee. If you're out there, don't come back in. When you see the armies coming, stay away. Don't think it's noble to fight for the city and to go down with the ship, so to speak. God's judgment is upon it. He's going to build a new temple. In fact, he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, which in John 2, he says that. And then he says, after the resurrection, they realized he was talking about the temple of his body, not the physical structure. But when he was arrested and was brought before the high priest and was tried, the one accusation that really stuck um, was that this man said, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And because he did say that, and he literally did do it, except the temple was his literal body, not the literal temple structure of stone. They didn't get that right then, but we on this side understand it. So Jesus is describing the temple's out of season and unfruitful and God's judging it. So if you see the sign, here's the sign of the end of the temple, an army will be marching around this city. That's how you know the time. It's time has come, and it's it's done. And really after that, Christianity was scattered and went very far on mission, but it, it no longer was suffering under the persecution of the Jews. In fact, the Jews were then scattered and suffering a different kind of persecution. But for those early Christians, that first worry was gone. And that happened specifically in 70 AD. The general's name was Titus. He would later become an emperor of Rome. He marched a big army down there, and he went in and did such damage. Uh, Originally, I think he was supposed to keep the temple structure as a sign to how magnificent the city was that he had conquered. But I think they were just so caught up in the attack. They went in, they burned it. They just did massive destruction, ended ended up wiping it completely out, which is what Jesus prophesied would happen. So he warns them, be ready, this is coming, and until then, brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. But he gives words of hope in there too. Verse 18 and 19, he says, 
but not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So Advent for us is about endurance. It's about patient waiting. There's no reason Jesus couldn't come back today. There's also no reason it couldn't be 2,000 more years. Every generation has thought, this is going to be the one, this is going to be the one, and then it just keeps going, keeps going, and it's by patient endurance. He's saying, you will gain your lives. On an eternal scale, the suffering you might go through is not even worth comparing. It's so much bigger. It's so much better what's going to happen for those who believe in Christ. Now, that's the persecution of the Jews. There's also the perplexity of nature and nations. So if you jump down a little further, where we started today in verse 25, it says, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. How about that? Friday, massive earthquake in Anchorage or up near Anchorage and all around there. And then all the aftershocks and they were afraid of a tsunami. We've just come through hurricane season or almost through it. And we've seen storms. We've seen all kinds of stuff all around the world. Jesus is saying, don't be worried. That does not mean it's the end of the time. That's just a sign of the time that we're in. So a lot of times people will say that history is just cyclical. You know, what you don't learn about history, you're doomed to repeat, as the saying goes. That while things keep repeating in a small scale, the calamities, the troubles, history is very linear. It is moving from point A to point B. And the first coming of Christ was a real event in real history on a date. In fact, we mark time now, or we used to mark it A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. Now we call it Common Era. The scholars have gotten away from Jesus. But that doesn't change the fact that it really happened, and it's really, he's really coming back. But in this season, things tend to feel like they're cyclical because we keep seeing calamities in nature and also the perplexity of nations. So from the fall of Rome way back when to the Arab rising recently to, uh, you know, fill in the blank when a seemingly very stable human institution is suddenly upended, it can make you think the end is upon us. Nope, that's just signs of the times. Jesus was saying you're going you're gonna to experience these things. So right about the time that the temple was destroyed, just before that, uh, Emperor Nero committed suicide because he had been tried in absentia and they found him condemned, to, they, were gonna condemn, they condemned him to death and they were going to execute him. He killed himself. Then it went through a series of four emperors right after him in one year before it kind of leveled off a little bit more. That's unnerving for something like Rome that was so big and strong. And then not long after that, you know, the Roman Empire fell. And so the perplexity of nations, just signs of the times, these things are going to happen. That's not a sign of the end. But let me tell you what the sign of the end is. He describes it right here. He says in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So this perplexity of nature and nations, it's going to keep happening. And so when someone shows up and says, I'm the Christ, follow me, don't pay any attention to that. In fact, I was reading a commentary on this by Bishop N.T. Wright, and he said, he said, as I write this, literally today, someone reached out to me and claimed to be the resurrected Christ returned. I, and I just had to laugh. I thought, man, that's weird. I guess Bishop of Durham, you get those kind of calls. But, you know, people are claiming to be the returning Christ. Don't pay any attention. Here's the sign. 
great glory coming on the clouds. And he's picking up the words of Daniel chapter 7, describing one like a son of man who would come in great glory on the clouds. And Jesus ascended that way back to the Father's right hand. So he literally rose up off of the earth and then was taken in the clouds. But it was somewhat obscure. Just the 11 were with him out there on that hillside. Maybe a couple others were there. I don't know. But it wasn't like all of humanity saw this and he, and the, he just was gone. But when he comes back, he says, it will be in great glory. You won't miss it. So don't think some guy claiming to be the Christ over in some other city and, you know, with a lot of power and whatever. It's not him. You don't have to worry about that. The signs of the times are this perplexity of nation and nature. The sign of the end of this age is when the Son of Man comes in great glory. And there's no way a human person, with, even with the power of the devil behind him, is going to have the kind of glory that Jesus is going to have when he comes back. You won't miss it. Until then, hang on, endure, be patient, don't get frustrated, don't let your head droop. You know, the encouraging word here is when you see him coming, straighten up, lift up your heads, for the day of redemption has drawn near. You're going to be redeemed, you're going to be saved completely. Now, what is it? I'm going to come back to that word redemption in a minute, but what is it that causes us to droop our heads? Well, over time, it's the weight of sin. You know, if you're a believer, you want to do what the Lord wants you to do. But then inside are these competing, these rival desires. The Apostle Paul describes it so clearly and painfully in Romans 7. I do the very thing I don't want to do, you know? And what I do want to do, I can't do. I mean, the word do is in there like 12 times or something. But he's describing that inner struggle. We just get weary from it, being a sinner and, and just... Keep, uh, keep having to repent. We have to confess our sins every week. It just is wearying, and you can kind of get discouraged. That's really the danger of long waits. It's discouragement. It's just, you get tired. You get weary, and you get disappointments from life. So in a long wait, a lot of times we're tempted to look to something less than the Lord for our hope. We put our hope in something of this life that can sort of satisfy, maybe for a little while, but then not ultimately. It always ends up disappointing us. It can't fully satisfy because we're made for the Lord. Only He can do it. And so you live long enough, you put your hope in the wrong things, and they disappoint every time. And you start to droop, and you feel like, what's the point? It seems like there's a lack of progress, and you start to think maybe history is just cyclical, and this is just going to keep going on, never ending, and be frustrating. And then you come to Grace Anglican Church on Advent 1, you light the candle, you see the colors, and you remember, wait a minute, there is a bigger story going on. This is linear. History is moving to a clear end, and it's a glorious one. It's just, hang on, be patient. It's coming. Your redemption is coming. They were looking up to the temple, and Jesus is saying, look up to me. Your salvation is here. Look to me. So this word, redemption, it can be translated ransom, like paying a ransom money to get somebody back. It can be translated buying a slave's free freedom, someone who's a slave, paying off the debt so that they can be a free person again. It can mean lifting a weight off of someone. So we're weighted down, and Jesus, our Redeemer, ransoms us back from that. So we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. It's a great song for this season. Well, it's not just Israel's captivity by Roman occupation. It's there and our captivity to sin, that inner problem. And Jesus breaks the power of it. See, when he says, destroy this temple, and on the third day, I will raise it, 
He does that on Easter. He kills death. He defeats death, and he defeats the sin within us. And he gives us the ability to be more and more like him. And so his kingdom is starting to work. History is not circular. It's linear. But the scholars, I'm going to use this piece of paper here to illustrate something. The scholars talk about these two ages overlapping. So picture this being the old covenant days coming from back in Moses' time right up till Jesus' time. And then the new age is right here keeping going. Everyone thought when these two ages intersect, Jesus arrived, boom, the kingdom of God. It's all the problems are going to be gone. But they weren't. So the scholars say it's like this. The ages have overlapped a bit. So they say it's already, but not yet. The kingdom of God has already come, but it's not yet perfected. It's not yet fully consummated. And so we have these problems of the age, the signs of the age as he's describing it. These things are going to keep happening until the sign of the end comes when he's on a cloud. So what's our, what's our job? Well, one, uh, down in, in verse 31, he says, so when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Do you remember what Jesus' first message was when he arrived on the scene coming out of 40 days of temptation in the wilderness and he went into public, into the public area and he started to proclaim? His very first message was the kingdom of God is at hand. He came into enemy territory and he said, my kingdom is here and planted his flag and invited anyone who wants to come in to come in. But there's a battle going on. So there's this overlap where his kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not been totally finished. It's not been consummated. It's not been perfected. And we live in that overlap. We're in the already but not yet. And he's saying the kingdom of God is here. Live in that. Go for that. That's where our hope is. We should be part of that. So Advent and Lent and all these different seasons in the part of the liturgical calendar is a way of telling ourselves and others the story of God going from a, a perfect creation and then a fall to a new creation through redemption in the middle when Christ came and redeemed us and the world and everything with his death and resurrection. He's saying, live in the kingdom now. Work for the kingdom now. Get that worldview. Reject the other worldviews. You know, whether they're the pithy little license plate, you know, worldviews that say, he who dies with the most toys wins, those kind of things, or the bigger worldviews, which are like karma or this circular history thing that it just keeps going and it's never going to end. Reject the wrong worldview and recognize something of what God is doing in our world and join him in it. You get to see glimpses. You see the budding on the tree. You know, as this, the song says, far as the curse is found, he's pushing back that curse and he invites us to be part of it. It's an exciting thing to be part of that. It's really uh, uh, fearful in one, on one hand. It's frightening that, God, that God's kingdom is breaking into our broken, sinful world and our broken, sinful lives. Now, he gives us a warning. I'm coming close to a conclusion here. He gives us a warning down in verse 34. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Dissipation is the same word that refers to what the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son does. He takes his father's wealth and he just kind of squanders it on stupid living and sinful activities. Be careful. Don't let your heart be weighed down by that kind of living. Don't waste your life. Invest it. Use it in the kingdom. Fight for God's kingdom. Be part of this stuff. And Jesus says we need strength for it. So in verse 36, he tells us what to do. He says, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength 
to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You know, Jesus prayed for us. He tells us to pray for ourselves for strength, but Jesus prayed for us as well. In John 17, he prayed, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Let them be in the world, but not of it. Not sharing its worldview, but yet being in it as a, as a, a front for the kingdom. So we're advancing the kingdom in our lives, being in the world and present to it, but not of it, not sharing its values and its worldview and not dissipating our lives by living worldly lives, but rather living for the kingdom. And Jesus said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. So let's pray for that. And as we head into this, recognize where our hope is. Hold on. It's taking a while, but it is coming. He's coming. The word Advent literally means coming. So he's come the first time, and he's proven that his word is trustworthy, and he says, I'm coming back. And so we pray, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Come, Lord. And in the meantime, give us strength as we wait that we might endure and serve your kingdom. So let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would reveal to each one of us which story we believe, what narrative our life is aligned with. And I pray that we would, in this season, set our hope on your coming, your second coming. I pray that as we celebrate your first coming on Christmas, that it would remind us of your trustworthiness. Lord, open our eyes to see your kingdom in our midst. Give us that strength we need. Thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit that you are with us to the end of this age. And I pray that we would have hope and expectation in you alone. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.